Manner of Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 41, June 2021. Glossolalia, a conversation with Paul DeLacy. Hello again, Paul Meyer here. Welcome. We've been enjoying a cool spring here in the American Midwest. Just got back from a short trip through southeastern Kansas, southwest Missouri, and northwest Arkansas. The Ozark Mountains were spectacularly green and thickly forested, and they were complemented by the Lake of the Ozarks, very full after the spring rains. I highly recommend that part of the United States if you haven't explored it. In the Midwest and South, I'm always interested to hear how price words are pronounced. In some parts of the South, the familiar Southern drawl is to be heard, but only when a voiced consonant follows the vowel, or in open syllables, as in, at high tide, it's time for a ride. But not when a voiceless consonant follows, as in, I like that nice typewriter. Other places, and Arkansas gave me evidence, that vowel is drawled in all contexts. So we would hear, I like that nice typewriter. Of course, dialects are a moving target, ever-changing, with younger speakers significantly different from their elders. Speaking of which, guess that accent. Last time I played this clip from Idea and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. I think seven or eight years in a row I was in Greece. So because my father was a Latin and Greek teacher, and um, I really enjoyed that. So we had a little really fish fisher... Fisher Village, or what say. If you guessed Germany, congratulations. It was Ideas Germany 3. The subject is from Lüneburg and also lived in Kiel. The recording was contributed by my former student, Chloe Ritter, 21 years ago. If you're listening, Chloe, I hope you're doing well. To hear the whole recording of Germany 3, go to the Germany page on the Europe page at dialectsarchive.com. Now, here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend her formative years? Well, here's a story for you. Sarah Perry was a veterinary nurse who had been working daily at an old zoo in a deserted district of the territory, so she was very happy to start a new job at a superb private practice in North Square near the Duke Street Tower. Get the answer next time. If you speak in a dialect or accent underrepresented on idea, Remember that we very much welcome self-submissions. It's pretty easy and all done online in about 30 minutes. Just go to the Submissions tab on the menu bar at dialectsarchive.com. My guest today is Paul DeLacy, Professor Emeritus of Rutgers University in New Jersey and an Honorary Associate Professor at the University of Auckland in his native New Zealand. He's a phonologist. That's a linguist who specialises in the sounds of language. Paul has been researching glossolalia for more than 20 years and is one of just a very few scientists who have researched this fascinating phenomenon. Well, welcome, Paul DeLacy. It's so good to finally talk to you. Yes, likewise, Paul. This is going to be confusing, isn't it? Because both Pauls will have to be quite careful. Yes, Paul DeLacy and Paul Meyer here. So glossolalia, uh, let's dive straight in. What is glossolalia? Is it the same as speaking in tongues? Um, how is it different from... Xenoglossia or xenoglossia or xenolalia, aren't those wonderful words? 
Oh, uh, and so many of them, xenolalia, xenoglossy, xenoglossy, you know, you can, you can say them so many different ways and all are right. So, okay, well, what are they? What are they? Now, this is a great question and really been the focus of my research for a long time. So here goes. Glossolalia is spontaneous, sustained speech that doesn't convey complex meaning. I know that's a bit of a mouthful, so I, I guess I'd better break it down, right? It doesn't convey complex meaning. So you can't say something like the cat hates the dog in glossolalia. Uh, that's technically true. Some people believe you can say sentences like that, but they can't really point to the part which means the cat hates the dog. Mm. Um, so in other words, glossolalia doesn't have semantic content like you would get in normal speech, but it does have pragmatic content. So when people are speaking glossolalia, they might be conveying various things to themselves or to their listeners. So they might show that they've got a religious status or uh, they're close to God or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it depends thing, on thing, things that we do in, in real speech at the same time, right? Absolutely. So all of those functions, you know, I should add here that, you know, some people do claim to know what people are saying when they speak glossolalia Mm -hmm. and they give it complicated meaning, but Christianity has a special take on this. So there are people who have the gift of interpretation and that these people don't actually speak glossolalia, but they do interpret it. So you have a speaker who might not know what they're saying, but then you have an interpreter who claims they do. And I cannot tell you whether there is a connection between those two, because that's not something I've studied. Right. But there is a, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I just said the difference between the uh, xenoglossia and the glossolalia. Mm, That is very interesting and confusing. Why don't you give us the etymology and the roots? Pick pick those words apart and and give us the the Greek. The glossy part, the glossa part uh, means tongue, uh, can also mean language or dialect and the laleo means speak so when people say it's speaking in tongues that that really is quite a good translation of of uh, of glossolalia uh, but the xenoglossy is xeno is other um, so it means speaking another language and that's really the big difference so xenoglossy is where you spontaneously start talking another human language something that exists as a human language glossolalia it's not a human language I know you cannot share recordings of your subjects that you've recorded over the years because of your research protocols, but I know you, you tell me that you can read from your phonetic transcriptions of some of that. Would this be a good point to just dive in and say, what does that feel like? Um, and I'll play some real glossolalia in a minute. So what I've said is quite theoretical. Um, I've got to warn you, I do not speak glossolalia, so I'm, I'm going to quote it and I'm going to read from my IPA transcriptions. It's really hard to recite, Paul, and I really hope I don't mess this up. I'm not going to do justice to the actual speakers. Uh, Okay, so here we go. Here's here's one little excerpt from one of my subjects. That's not too bad. I think that's about the speed he made it at. And it had the musicality of real speech, of course. Yes, uh, it has the intonation. And you spoke it in a stress-timed rhythm. Yes, yes, I did. (laughs) My God, you're good at at noticing these things. Um, and here is another speaker. He was a pastor, actually, this person. Are these all American subjects, by the way? They they do vary. I have recordings from all over the world. Including... Who, who was that first one? Can you can you at least share the um, yes, the, the, the nationality? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, so the first person was a New Zealand English speaker 
who was a monolingual speaker, only spoke New Zealand English, female, around the age of 40 to 45. Read it again. I want to hear sure. it again. Shanda de kia omomolia omomomolaya. Hmm. Doesn't have the, what I think of it as the, as the Kiwi accent. That's interesting. Uh, I'm reading it with a, that's probably because I'm trying not to do my full-on Kiwi accent right now. Sounds like more more Maori, perhaps. I don't know, but um, I don't know. I'm just, perhaps that's me imposing something on the top of it. That is very interesting. We should come back to that issue later on, I think, because it really touches on the issue of dialect and how there are dialects of glossolalia and so on. Okay. So I can give you another example, if you like. Please, yes, from I would. This person is a, a pastor, mm-hmm. and I believe from the west coast of the United States. So... Love it again. Okay, phew. let me let me try that again. There it is. It's hard. I'll, I'll tell you something that's hard about this, Paul, and why I'm stumbling over it is because glossolalia. One of the key things about it is that it's spontaneous and sustained. So people can do it for a very long time. I have some speakers who really did it nonstop for about 45 minutes. Hmm. I mean, that, that's astonishing, isn't it? I you imagine speaking for 45 minutes. It's extremely hard. And it's so true. I, you know, I, I find it very hard to read this out. That's all right. You're forgiven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you. But I want to I, hear it again, nonetheless. Great. Um, well, actually, I, I have a, a slightly different example here that I might stumble less over. Do you mind if I read that's that? That's fine. That's fine. Great. Kobara kitara shoke bera koya bera bakodinara ketero. There we go. That was nice. And you said that's a West Coast pastor, uh, an that's American correct. English speaker. That's correct. American English. Yeah. I Maybe, believe yeah. Washington State, uh, Northwest, Northwest okay. Coast. Yeah. Now, I don't want to anticipate your what, what you're going to talk about later, but I do hear some non English, non American English sounds. Yes, in, you, you uh, do. We will probably cover that later, but I'm happy mm-hmm. to talk about whatever, whenever you like. You also suggested a couple of um, YouTube clips to yes. me, and I'm going to play one of them here. The one, the lady who looks Latina. Okay. So, you know, the work of the Holy Ghost is to shikilimenda and to shundes damaste and to shumahaha kito. So you can each day balabasito and each derota labacase and otorizi is doch dome. Oh, sinidi kales dome. So cruch didi. Cruz de bele atijumit enis tubra tule micra is jumush de la ale rose de mushirande poca What can you tell us about what we just heard? She's clearly a, a Christian speaker, I think, right? Uh, on a stage preaching. And in fact, you may notice that a lot of the intonation and so on in the glossolalia is actually very, very similar to the intonation she would use in her preaching. On top of that, it's much harder, of course, to spot this. But if you really start breaking down the sounds that she uses, you would notice that they follow specific patterns. Uh, There's a lot of consonant and vowel sequences. So consonant, vowel, consonant, vowel, consonant, vowel. 
laba, 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 right? That's exactly right. Right. And if you think of the kind of combinations we can have in English, we can have some pretty crazy combinations of consonants and vowels. So sixths, for example, has ksths right at the end. Um, you know, scratch has skr at the beginning. Uh, but you don't often find combinations like that in people's glossolalia. It, it's really? rare, but it's it's more rare. It's rarer. Yeah. The consonant yeah. clusters of three and four consonants are, are rarer, you're saying? Less frequent, right. Mm. And same with vowel clusters and, and so on. Um, so they are there, but the frequency is lower. Is it more monophthongal? It can be, although there are plenty of diphthongs kicking around uh, once you start digging deep enough. Okay. And yes, uh, that is, by the way, you're touching on a very important point about glossolalia, and that is that it does conform a lot to your first language, the language that you actually speak. Mm -hmm. uh, but it also reflects the kind of frequencies that you will have various sounds and sound shapes show up in. And so, that's what your analysis uh, of all your many samples will show us, right? Right. Yes. Can't wait to for that to be published. Oh, me neither. I believe, <laughs> believe me. <laughs> I don't know if this is a good point at which to introduce this idea. We could be going off on a complete tangent, but I recently found out that in 1999, the Catholic Church released mm. De Exorcismis et Supplicationibus, the first revision of its guidance on when an exorcism is warranted. And that was the first revision since 1614. And at the top of that, the list of requirements for an exorcism to be a, uh, performed is uh, among the signs of demonic possession are speaking in unknown languages. So what are, what are your thoughts on that? There's a very long tradition of the idea that demon-possessed people will be able to speak other languages. And I believe the theological idea is that a person has been invaded by this entity and the entity may speak another language, may speak an angelic language or another human language. Uh, it makes a lot of sense once you accept the theology. At the same time, it's not definitional of being demonically possessed because, for example, at Pentecost, all the disciples and Jesus' followers could suddenly start speaking unknown languages, right? Uh, so it's one of those things that there's a theological reason for them saying, yes, you know, if you start speaking another language, you could be demon-possessed, but it doesn't mean you are demon-possessed. Right. By the way, this is a great example of the difference between xenoglossy and glossolalia. So they say, if someone is speaking unknown languages, and, and the question is, do they mean other human languages or do they mean... They don't happen to know yes. themselves, right? Right, right, exactly. So I think if you spoke xenoglossy or glossolalia, you would be on the hook there. You would be suspected of demonic influence. I would so in your, in your interviews with the various practitioners... Do they talk about guarding against malevolent possession? And, and so they only channel the good side of the universe? They don't really present it in that way. So I suppose this touches on who actually speaks it. So who are my subjects? And it's true that a number of them are Christians, especially Protestant Christians from an evangelical background and, and so on. And when they speak glossolalia, they've never talked about it as being worried about that uh, a demonic influence. Mm -hmm. It's always been, I'm communicating with God. I am in the spirit, you know, mm -hmm. uh, in, in the kind of 
mode and they they never no one expressed any concern about opening themselves up to demonic influence okay yet of course the catholic church theology wouldn't have exorcism if the existence of satan were not presupposed that's right and in fact we might see this particular thing this particular catholic uh, insistence on glossolalia indicating demon possession is actually perhaps driven by anti-Protestantism because gloss speaking glossolalia is far more prevalent among Protestants mm. and quite rare among Catholics outside of the charismatic Catholic group. So, you so, know, it, it's hard to know. Yeah. Yes. So uh, take us through who speaks glossolalia, where will we find it and so forth? That's uh, very, very interesting, because I think most people would immediately think of speaking in tongues, which really describes Christian-speaking glossolalia. And uh, you, you'll find it among certain groups of Protestant Christians, but you'll also find it elsewhere. And I have been surprised by the range of people who have contacted me to give me samples of their glossolalia. Uh, I've had Taoist meditators. I've had actors who do it as a warm-up routine. Yes. And uh, there was a really quite remarkable one, a, a man who quite high up in, in his government, I, I don't want to give too much away, but he uh, was suffering immense emotional stress and suddenly started speaking glossolalia and had the presence of mind to record it. Isn't that incredible? Mm. Um, yeah. And so for him, it was like a stress relief fell. Yes. And I've been reading in some of the, some excerpts from some of the psychological journals psychology journals that uh, they've investigated it's the correlation between glossolalia and and mental illness and stress release mm. so who else uh, obviously the the charismatic right that's where you'll find most of it if you look on youtube there are certainly many other cases uh, for example the delphic oracle may have spoken yeah. glossolalia I was, I was going to bring up or oracular speech oh really well we can talk a lot more about it later if you like or i can yes. tell you about it now Jump in right now. Great. Okay. So uh, the Oracle at Delphi, very famous, right? Um, something like the 7th to 4th centuries BC. So you would go to Delphi and the Delphic Oracle uh, or the Pythia was a young lady and she would sniff in some gas that came out of a rock and then start speaking. <laughs> there is, we don't know what she was sniffing. There is controversy over whether she was speaking glossolalia or whether she spoke fully formed sentences. In one tradition, she spoke glossolalia and her priests then interpreted. So that's a very early documented potential case of glossolalia that goes, what, almost 2,500, 2,600 years ago. Yes, amazing. Written glossolalia? Yes, uh, that's curious. You know, writing and actual verbal speech they're very very different things cognitively but uh it seems that in some cases there may be written glossolalia so it, it used to be in the ancient middle east you would go to a scribe and pay them to write prayers or curses on pottery and then they would smash the pottery and some of the writing kind of seems like glossolalia because it doesn't make any sense it's just random letters put together but it's also possible that the scribes were ripping the people off that they couldn't really write sentences they just knew how to draw letters so uh yes we don't really know about that it's not clear fascinating yes. and of course of course your own 
a phonetic transcription of glossolalia <laughs> amounts to written glossolalia, but it's, it's, it's not that you were inspired to write it, of course. So that's a different, <laughs> that's, that's a different case. Right. So dialects of glossolalia, you hinted at that a little earlier. Let's follow, follow up on then. Is there, a, is there a Cockney or an Australian English or, or a Kiwi English glossolalia? Yes. The, the short answer is yes. The longer answer is that the evidence seems to me to suggest that glossolalia is heavily influenced by your first language. So that's the language you grew up speaking. So if I spoke glossolalia, it would be a New Zealand English glossolalia. If you spoke it, it would be, and where is your dialect from? Oh my goodness, uh, everywhere, you know, British English uh, originally. Too Excellent. Many, many years in, in America, so I'm a, a bit of a hybrid. Excellent. So you're, you're kind of like me. I can slightly put on an American English accent. I would, I would suspect that if you did glossolalia, your British uh, accent would come through full force. That's interesting. So my, my true self, my deepest, oldest self would be Quite revealed. Possibly. Yeah. And <laughs> right. And there are really striking differences, right? So for example, uh, in my vernacular New Zealand English, I don't say L at the end of a word. So I don't say bill. I say boo, mm -hmm. so my L turns into a ooh. Uh, mm -hmm. It happens over, all over the place. So my glossolalia should have the same thing. I, I shouldn't have L's in that position. Right. That would be the idea. Uh, Cockney the same too. Right. So no T's at the end of words, just glottal stops, right? So yeah, so, so in the transcription, in the phonetic transcription that you read, we heard sounds that were not native to that person's L1, their first language. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So if you delve really deeply, and by the way, this is what makes studying this very hard. You, you have to, to transcribe the sounds and you have to analyze them using spectrograms and pitch tracks mm -hmm. and so on. Once you do, you, you do realize that the vast majority of sounds they produce do come from their L1. Yes. Once in a while, there will be a sound that definitely does not. And the question is, where does that sound come from? Exactly. Right. If you dig deep enough you and you talk to the people about those sounds, they will tell you interesting things. One woman, for example, had many glottal stops. So she had a word like, oh, uh, um, you know, with a, that kind of catch in your throat. Sounds Hawaiian. And that's what she said. How, how about that? She said, this is my Pacific Islander glossolalia. Ah. So I think what's happening here is that people have an idea about what they want to produce and they will add a essentially a, like a foreign language element to it or a, a, a target. So the, the lady wanted to speak a Pacific Island language. So she had a goal of speaking Xenoglossy and so she added all these glottal stops. So sometimes you find these motivations in the glossolalia. Uh, after all, I'm, I'm sorry, please go ahead. What you were saying prompted this thought from me that if this is a sacred experience, this is a sacred phenomenon, there's a desire to speak in a more elevated language, maybe a priestly language, and those more exotic sounds that aren't in your own L1 might very well indicate or be redolent of, of a sacred priestly language. Is that a possibility or am I just talking off my head here? No, that's very, that's a very interesting possibility. After all, we all speak several different languages, right? We speak our vernacular that we speak mm. to our family and we also mm -hmm. speak very formal language and they can be quite 
quite different in terms of speech sounds. So yes. uh, I met, that's actually something interesting, Paul. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna look at that. But one thing I think also, and one other factor is that when people speak glossolalia, they might believe they're speaking other human languages. So I've had people or, say, or the or the voice of God, right? Yes, exactly. Right, some angelic voice. Mm-hmm. They might feel that in fact they're not speaking; that God is speaking through them. And so uh, then what is in their mind about what kind of sounds they want to produce? Well, you know, that's, that's a more complex issue and may in fact motivate a lot of these um, extraneous sounds that show up that are not their L1 sounds. Great. This might be a good place to play the, the, the Caribbean oh, yeah. lady that you've mentioned. So I'll play her right now. Father, we thank you. You are awesome. Rabra sadare brozade. Lavazendere boja broda katae. Malavoze brende libaraz. Labroja dae. Maroblo sokotori ganda. Aiza blende viro brozantalia. Zodori brozadan. Levede libroda gande. Maluza bruda liga dara blando robo sende. Ibaroba janta rabrazando. Iboro zidalika tarandale. Aroblozandele vedi rabrozadae. So that, I think, supports what you were saying. Yes, and you notice how fluent she is, unlike me. You know how I stumbled over just a little bit of glossolalia, but uh, she could, it sounds like she could do that for a very long time. And, and that's a very important feature of glossolalia. It's not something you can memorize and repeat. You know, she'll keep on going and, and won't repeat herself either. It's, it's really quite astonishing. Do we know what part of the Caribbean she's from? I don't, but I can take a guess. I actually work on the dialect spoken on St. Kitts and Nevis, and she sounds a little different. I think she may have had an R at the end of a syllable in there, which suggests to me Jamaican or something similar up there. Uh, We would know for sure if we heard a K followed by a low vowel, because then if she said the word car, for example, she'd say it as kiar. And uh, those features would show up in her glossolalia if we listened long enough. Okay. Earlier, you mentioned actors who'd contacted you uh, who use oh, yeah. glossolalia as, as a warm-up technique. And there is, in fact, you may have heard of the Knight Thompson speech work and the, the wonderful founder of that system, Dudley Knight, in his goal of teaching actors how to do any accent or dialect on the planet for their acting work, uh, invented a, a language called Omnish, O-M-N-I-S-H, which purports to include every possible speech sound. So he encouraged his actors to become fluent at all kinds of exotic sounds. Brilliant. That, and, sounds, and, like, uh, that sounds like one of my phonetics classes. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to play a little clip of, um, I wish I could attribute this more accurately, but it's identified on YouTube just as Jenny's speech teach so there's a speech teacher by the name of jenny i think who's whose students were encouraged to do this scene and this is a scene in omnish and i'd like you to parse the difference between this intentional inclusion of every sound on the planet in a language with with what you more traditionally think of as glossolalia so here's here's the clip from jenny's speech teach Oh, 
Excellent. Yes, not glossolalia. <laughs> oh, not glossolalia. No. So uh, one of the sounds tucked in there was called a voiceless lateral fricative. Uh, yeah. there, there it is. And yeah. if you spoke Welsh, then yeah. that would show up in your glossolalia because it, it does in Welsh. It's not in my speech. I guess it's not in yours. Um, so if we spoke glossolalia, it's not going to show up. Unless we were trying to be Celtic bards. Yes. Channeling yes. Celtic bards, in which case we might say "sada rombal alishira" or or something. <laughs> None of those sounds are in my my elbow. Okay, so how how do um how do people's brains produce glossolalia exactly? What's going on? Well, that is uh, really the the topic of my research. So I, I'm a cognitive scientist and specifically a linguist and even more specifically, a, a phonologist. So my focus is on speech sounds. And of course, the, the great thing about glossolalia is that it's people producing speech sounds, and there's no pesky meaning to tie you up, um, <laughs> which is wonderful. That makes it uh, so interesting, doesn't it? <laughs> it? It does. Get rid of the meaning, and, um, and then we have the pure stuff, right? Exactly. Uh, you know, there has been some research on glossolalia from a cognitive science perspective, not a very big amount. Really, the the most extensive work has been by William Samarin, that's S-A-M-A-R-I-N. And he has a book called Tongues of Men and Angels. And by the way, if your listeners are interested, that's really what they should check out next. There was a, a couple of dissertations too. But the main finding there is that uh, what I've been mentioning, that your first language sets bounds on your glossolalia. So the limits that are on your vowels and consonants and how you combine them in your first language are also found in your glossolalia. However, at this point, this is where I start to shrug and say, I, I don't know. There's uncertainty about how much more you can restrict your glossolalia. So can your glossolalia have fewer consonants and vowels than your first language? Uh, some authors think so, but frankly, Paul, I'm, I'm not sure. Because like I mentioned, some of these sounds we have are pretty rare in our speech, and they they're also pretty restricted. Like if you take the sound ng, so a velar nasal stop, right? As in as the in, words. As in king singing the song. Yeah, absolutely right. So that only shows up at the end of syllables or at the end of words or, or before the sounds K and G, right? As in sync and angle. And it only shows up after short vowels. So it's actually very, very restricted. So mm. what are our chances of observing it if you just started producing sounds? And the answer is, you have to have quite kind of a lot of speech before you'd expect it to show up. And a lot of the previous research, it's either been unclear about how much they've looked at, or it's been clear what they've looked at, and it's very, very limited. So my suspicion is that if you have someone speak glossolalia enough, you'll find that they have all of the sounds that they have in their L1, mm -hmm. but you have to get them talking enough. However, I can't prove it yet. Yeah. And of course, you have a, a corpus of recordings that's vast by now. I, I do. And uh, the reason I say I can't prove it is because I haven't appropriately analyzed and transcribed that, that, that entire corpus. Mm -hmm. yeah. I can't help feeling that uh, it must be very, very exciting to generate speech that way. It's like opening the door on the, the Dionysian 
part of our nature, abandoning the formal structure of our grammar and vocabulary and doing something so very exotically different. And it must be exhilarating. Do your subjects speak of how exhilarating and moving it is to do this? Yeah, it's quite easy to see, actually. So uh, for some people, it comes out when they are in a really ecstatic state. Uh, For some people, it comes out while they're meditating, so in a very calm state. But, you know, there are certainly some people, and I've actually recorded them, who will switch to it just like you might switch between, say, English and Spanish. So if you speak both English and Spanish, you know, you can kind of just flick between them. Mm -hmm. And they will do that. They will literally be talking to you and then suddenly break into glossolalia, then switch back again. And they don't seem to tie in a great deal of emotion with it. It seems quite calm and functional. So exactly when you do it and the function of it varies really hugely depending on who you're talking to and what situation they're doing it in. Sounds as if we haven't got all this nailed down to the lab bench yet or bottled and stored away. It's a, it's a mystery. It is. It's still it, with it us. Oh, uh, I don't want to convey the wrong idea here. We don't know very much at all. And I think I am really to blame for a good portion of that because I've been working on it for such a long time, 26 years now. And, you know, you would have thought that I would have done a lot more, but I haven't. So glossolalia, is it like other types of speech, like babies babble, aphasics speech, or does it bear any resemblance to the phenomenon known as foreign accent syndrome? Those are all great questions. Let's start with babble. So I think when generally people use the word babble, there's a negative connotation. But for linguists, it's a technical term that refers to a particular stage of speech that infants produce, right? Mm-hmm. Very early on, babies try out a variety of sounds and they're trying to figure out which sounds you, you, their parents are using. And by about the age of one, they figure that out. And from then on, they're trying to figure out, okay, of all the speech sounds I have, what are the possible combinations that are fine and what are the ones that are bad? Mm-hmm. And I think that this stage is, is basically glossolalia. So the baby has a cognitive system, system of restrictions, And all the pseudo words and sentences the baby are producing, they sound like their parent's speech or something like it, but they don't actually have words as meaningful units. So they're not producing meaning. And uh, that's pretty much what glossolalia is doing. Essentially, you copy all the sound restrictions of your L1, and then you produce a bunch of strings of sounds that, you know, conform to those restrictions. It must be ecstatic to be a baby and be doing that. They seem happy at least some of the time, don't they, Paul? Although they do seem upset some of the time as well. So I'm not quite sure. I wish Mm. we could remember what on earth life was like when we were babies. I think it would solve a lot of mysteries. Pure experimentation in language as a a one-year-old. That seems exhilarating to me. Aphasics. Aphasics. So aphasia is brain damage. There are different types. I haven't really found a type that matches glossolalia, So not global brokers, Wernicke's, and not plain articulatory impairment. All of these types retain words, and glossolalia doesn't have words. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'm still looking, and the people who work on aphasia don't really classify it the same way that other linguists would. So I think there might be something lurking in there that I haven't found. Okay. What about those people who get a bang on the head and wake up speaking in a different (laughs) accent? Foreign accent syndrome, is that... Does that 
correlate at all? Can we bracket that with glossolalia? Believe me, if we could find where to smack people on the head to give them a foreign <laughs> accent, we would make a lot of money. But um, uh, unfortunately, people with this syndrome, which is, yeah, as you say, brain damage, sometimes psychiatric conditions can cause it. They don't actually develop foreign accents. What happens is they have impaired articulation. And it reminds the listener of, of foreign accents. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So glossolalia is not impaired at all, no, uh, not no. articulatorily impaired. Yeah. Okay. And I've got, just for fun, seeing, seeing as this is not a, a technical proceeding, we can have some fun. I'm going, yeah. to play, I'm going to play Sid Caesar, who was remarkable for being able to, to babble in meaningless, he babbled meaninglessly, but in convincing French. So here's Sid Caesar. Merci. He's good, isn't he? Isn't he's he impressive. Good? So there, there are some interesting, yeah. really interesting aspects of his speech, aren't they? So he, he actually throws in actual real French words and phrases in there. You know, there was esque right at the beginning. And, yes. and a few, just enough for you to recognize if you know a little bit of French. Oh, okay. That's French. And then he glides effortlessly into a, essentially a French glossolalia. Yes, like the uh, like the glossolalia speaker we played earlier, who did use some English, praise the Lord, and so forth. And he seems to have an internal script, so the, the, mm. there's intentionality going along with it. So yeah. his 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 motive is to is to impart information or to engage in discourse, but it's all with yeah. mostly nonsensical words. What other kinds of ecstatic speech act might we bracket with glossolalia? The inspired acting from great actors where they seem to be possessed or they, they report having been inspired and taken away and it feels like they're channeling that character. The stream of consciousness talking and writing. Is there anything profit in bracketing those with glossolalia? I think um, we have been perhaps overly focused on speaking in tongues and the religious context of glossolalia. I think, to be honest, you would find that it's much, much more common than we would typically give it credit for. And it, would, it shows up, uh, like I mentioned, you know, the fella just sitting on his porch, uh, feeling, feeling overwhelmed and suddenly starts speaking it. I think some people might find, maybe your listeners would find that, in fact, they speak glossolalia in very specific circumstances. For example, for me, apparently I sleep talk sometimes. Hmm. And my wife has told me that I'll speak up and have a conversation with her, essentially in glossolalia, and then fall back to sleep. It's in us all, apparently. <laughs> I think so. In fact, there was a, a psychological study in the mid-80s where what they did was they got a bunch of college students, they played them a minute of glossolalia, and then said, okay, go for it, give us 30 seconds of glossolalia. And they found that 20% of the students could do that after just listening to it for a minute. And then they played them another minute of it, and then they found 70% of the students could do it. The idea there is that actually we have it innately in us. And in fact, maybe we all do it. If baby's babble is glossolalia or very, very similar to it cognitively, then every single one of us actually goes through a glossolalic stage in our lives. It's sort of sobering, isn't it, that 
This is all suggestive that the socialization of human beings, the conventions and the the falling into a socially expected patterns is something that we can all shed and we can all go to that Dionysian part of our human experience. Do actors who have to portray glossolalia speakers get it right? You had suggested we listen to Robert De Niro in Cape Fear, the remake of that film from 1991. I'm going to play you that and have you comment. his character is drowning in a storm I, i'm really impressed at how you cleaned up the audio there you know he's one of my favorite actors um so so in that scene he's trying to speak in tongues he knows he's being drowned he's going to die and so he's trying to get in touch with god maybe even become kind of one with god while while he's dying so he's very good he's robert de niro of course he's going to be good but he's not perfect so what's wrong with his glossolalia one problem is that he hyper articulates. And so this is when you move your articulators. So your jaw, your tongue and your lips and so on too much beyond the range of motion you'd usually use. So the glossolalia speakers I recorded, they, they never did that. It was just mm -hmm. a usual range of motion. Now, to be really fair to poor Mr. De Niro, he is drowning. <laughs> so <laughs> adrenaline. In a, in a storm. <laughs> <laughs> in a storm. And, and so he's trying to shout louder than the noise, right? So he's He's probably hyper-articulating, but, but he still, he makes some other mistakes. It sounds like he's not exclusively using his first language as speech sounds. He had a bilabial trill in there, a brr, which yes. is only found in one Amazonian language that we know about, by the way. And there's some screeches as well. Oh, I've got, um, to, di I've got to disagree with you. Really? When I'm shivering with cold. Uh, <laughs> fair. And, and when you're talking to a baby, I guess, as well. <laughs> yes. There you go. That's right. So I think he's wildly moving his lips, tongue, and jaw. He's flapping them. And that's not glossolalia. That's generally not what people do. But but to be fair to poor Mr. De Niro again, he, he again, he is drowning. He has water splashed on his face. He's maybe got water in his mouth. So it's, it's a little unfair of me to sit back here and, and criticize him for making non-speech sounds. Yeah. I, I think you're nitpicking a fine actor. <laughs> I think I am. I, I, he is a fine actor. Paul, what's the ultimate goal of your... 26-year-long research into oh. glossolalia. Now I feel horribly old. Okay, so I think a lot of people might look at something like this and say, well, it's a really remarkable phenomenon. Of course, you'd be interested in studying it. But, you know, um, I'm a scientist. My research is driven by scientific goals. And the goal here is something very fundamental. We've had some several decades now of research into how the brain produces speech sounds. And we keep on finding asymmetries and limitations. So, for example, some languages don't allow you to start a word with a vowel. No words begin with vowels. But every language has words that start with consonants. Uh, so that's a basic asymmetry that ultimately traces back to how the brain is structured. There are all kinds of patterns to do with what sounds can turn into what other sounds, and there are many asymmetries. And this is called markedness. It's a long reason for why we call it this. I've actually written a book about it. 
I do not recommend that anyone reads it unless you really love highly technical linguistic theory. But there's one problem in testing my theory. Language keeps on getting in the way. So history has shaped all our vocabularies, right, in weird ways. So, for example, I say uh, wolf and wolves for the plural. And the fact that my F and wolf comes out as a V and wolves is really fossilized from way back in Old English, where F turned into V between certain sounds. So it would be nice to eradicate all of that stuff. And that's there where glossolalia comes up. So we don't have all this historical mess, this dross left over. We can, in theory, look straight at glossolalia and see the effects of our brains hmm. and all their asymmetries. Uh, so that's fantastic, right? I, I think yes. I couldn't ask for anything more. Yes, where, where else would you go for that kind of data? It's extremely hard to find. You, you have to hunt for it. Sometimes you find it in, in tiny little corners of phonological systems. But you're right, glossolalia really seems to offer this wonderful option. It's um, a gift in more senses than one. Seems like there's a very, very worthy and promising goal at the end of all this. Cognitively, absolutely. You know, I, and I think there'd be a lot of positive side effects. I, uh, when I've talked to uh, fundamentalist Christians who speak glossolalia, they're very keen to find out what is going on there and, and so on. Very, very open and been, they've been very, very supportive. Um, so I'm hoping it would have a lot of positive side effects. And maybe at the very least, if anyone wants to do research on glossolalia, the first thing they have to do is figure out, are they actually listening to glossolalia? Do they have glossolalia? And so we need that basic establishing, which is what my research is trying to do. Well, very, very best of luck with all of that. I cannot wait until you publish the conclusions. But Good luck. <laughs> thank you. And thank much. you very much. Thank you, Paul. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer and my guest, Professor Paul DeLacy. To learn more about him, please see the webpage on paulmeyer.com devoted to this podcast. Don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter, at Dialect Paul. The clips I played, all from YouTube, are used under the copyright doctrine of fair use. Cape Fear is copyright 1991, Amblin Entertainment. The clip from Sid Caesar is copyright 1952, NBC. My guest next month is Professor Pamela Keller, a law professor. We will be talking about voice, speech, and the law. See you next time on In a Manner of Speaking. <laughs>